Today's Bible reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. If you've got one of the church Bibles from the front door, you can find it on page 213. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now the Eli, now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. I'm sure it's a Bible reader's nightmare to get given a reading and then the first verse has all those names. And if, a, if you could applaud a Bible reader, that was awesome. Um, it is good to get into a new series in 1 Samuel. It's got a lot of great lessons for us. It's a, it's a book that's very relevant for us today, even though it's uh, some 1000 BC, some 3000 years ago story of people's journey with God. So how about we pray before we make a start? Dear Father, we do thank you for this morning that we can sit here in church. We thank you that we can come to meet with you and you promise you meet with us. Lord, we thank you for your word that it reveals to us so much about you and that you speak to us through that. And Lord, we just pray that in our hearts, 
and through our ears and our understanding, Lord, that, that we would learn about more about you this morning to know that you know us and that we can know you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I was shown by someone this website. It's a counter about how big our population is in the world. It's cut way over 7 billion now. And I think it was meant to impress me going, you know, it's one of those, you know, here's a bit of trivia for you. One of those ooh-ah moments. This looks great. But in fact, for me, I'm thinking, you know, I was feeling good before I looked up that website, thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm a somebody, I'm important, I'm feeling good about myself, I'm special, just like over 7 billion other people are important, unique and special. You know, maybe I'm not so big after all and made me feel really small. It was like one of those things uh, a few years ago, we were down on the Gold Coast and we uh, come up to the, one of those holiday promotion booths and they say, oh, you know, you might win a holiday, here's a scratchy. You scratch the scratchy off and you guessed it, We'd won a holiday uh, on the weekend on the Gold Coast. Uh, all you had to do was go to a two-hour seminar and look at their holiday promotions, which we did eagerly because we'd just won a holiday to realise 30 other people probably that same day scratched the same scratchy, won the same holiday and at the same seminar. And all of a sudden, not so special, not so unique. So when I look at this, there's over 7 billion people and climb nearly 7.5 billion people. kind of wonder, where do I fit? On the one hand, it's great we've got lots of people around us, lots of people to share our journey, lots of people to make friends with. It sounds really good, but when you see that many people, and if your life is like mine, when there's crowds, it's actually harder to have genuine friendships, harder to know people, and it's actually easier to be lonely and feel cut off and feel misunderstood that actually amongst 7 billion people, does anybody really care about me? Everybody's trying to get their share of the attention. I mean, who really cares about me? I mean, this is one of the biggest problems in our uh, community at the moment. Uh, doctors are saying the issue of loneliness, the issue of people feeling unloved, that nobody cares for them, nobody listens to them. It is a problem. And that's why I love getting into the Old Testament. Here we meet a real per person in Hannah. Hannah's a person uh, that has got the same questions. Does anybody care about me? She is feeling alone. She is feeling unloved. Who cares about me? Does anybody care? But as we look at her journey, uh, it's good for us to, to look at that this morning because she comes to a position where she does work through that and find an answer. She actually has an understanding of God that we can learn a lot about and we can understand the God who understands us, which is also uh, helps us through that journey. But there's things in, for Hannah uh, that we need to understand. And we introduced her just to get to know her story, to know, because I think a lot of people, a lot of us are going to relate to her journey, either firsthand or, or just know what she's experiencing. But we can feel the first two, uh, first two verses. Uh, that, they actually explain a lot. They go through all the names of uh, who she, who she is. So she's introduced as Elkanah's wife. And who's Elkanah? Well, we know a lot about Elkanah. Uh, we know his, where he's from. We know his dad. We know his granddad. We know his great-granddad. We even know where his great-granddad is from. We know all about Elkanah, the husband. And who's Hannah? Well, she's the wife of Elkanah. What do we know about her or her family tree? 
Nothing, but she's Elkanah's wife. And this is sort of a reflection of society in that time. It's a little bit cultural. They give a lot of details about the men. The women are just sort of a part of the family group that way. But just the, the fact that she's a woman and she's described that way or introduced to us that way actually says a lot. So let me give you a bit of culture, the feel of what is going on at that time if you're a woman at that time and how you are just a bit of a tack on in that time. See, before 1 Samuel, um, chronologically, is the book of Judges. So if you had your Bible and you flick back a couple of pages, you see the book of Ruth, which is a nice story about a woman, her journey with God there. But chronologically, historically, it's Judges. The book of Judges is the next thing that happened just before 1 Samuel. And when you look at the last four chapters of Judges, you get the feel of it's sort of laying the foundation of what next. And the last four chapters in chapter 18, uh, it starts off, I'll just give you a two-minute overview. Uh, it starts off by saying how Israel had set up a temple in one of their um, in one of their towns, one of their key towns, Shiloh, and that's where, to meet God, you go to that temple. But it also says throughout Israel and all the other towns, they set up idols and temples to other gods. And you kind of go, what are they thinking? Israel are God's people. But now they've just got not God, but other gods. They kind of push God to the side. And the writer, the historian who's writing this, says um, at that time, Israel had no king. What it means is not just a king that sits on the throne, but they had no leader. Even God was referred to as king sometimes, but even God wasn't king for these people at that time. God was pushed to the side. But it begs the question, what is this society like if they've got no God, if he's pushed to the side? We come to the story in chapter 19 about a man uh, who has had men, angry men at his door. So what does he do to push him away? Pushes out his girlfriend in the night to these wild men to say, do whatever you please with her. And the woman is graphically described uh, in this story about what's going on. She's gang raped and beaten all night and the next day she dies. I'm not sure whether we should be upset at what the men outside did or what the boyfriend did in kicking her out. Anyway, the Israel judges... They got so upset at this, they're going, to bring judges, they're going to bring justice onto the community. They're going to wipe out the town. In the process, it's a long story, but the end result is to resolve the situation, they have to find 600 young virgin women to marry some, some men to repopulate this town. So 600 young women are kidnapped. Many of them, their families were killed and they were stolen out of their villages or they were just kidnapped from their families and forced to marry 600 other men they didn't know. And the 600 men are men that the Israelite leaders vowed never to let their daughters marry. They weren't even good men. You kind of go, where's the justice in that? And the book ends, the last couple of verses. Israel had no king, and every man did as he saw fit. Now, it's there, it's very graphic, and it's very disturbing, and you know, some of us have first-hand um, experience in, in domestic violence and just violence to women at all, and you know, the Bible's not condoning that. It's not saying this is okay, in fact, it's doing the opposite. This is what it's like, because Israel have gone so far from God that they're just taking it out on the women. What it also shows in the last four chapters, not one woman is named, not one woman speaks in the story. They're just 
dragged along as, as abused uh, women. They've got no voice, no rights. They're a nobody. And that's how Judges ends. It leaves you hanging. Can this get any worse? Now, if you flick the page of the Bible, you get the story of Ruth. You get the story of this woman. Uh, finally, we have a woman with a name and a voice. She does most of the talking in the book of Ruth. And she's a foreigner and God loves her and looks after her and blesses her. And she's a good, uh, big part of the story in the chronology to Jesus. But when we hit one Samuel again, we get the amazing shock. We're introduced to another woman. Women haven't been mentioned specifically for a long time. Then we meet Hannah. Now, Hannah's a woman and she's married to Elkanah. That's how she's introduced. We don't need to know. Well, historically, because she's a woman, she doesn't really matter. She hasn't got a voice. She's just Elkanah's wife. How else is she introduced? Oh, she's my wife, Hannah. And by the way, she has no children. How would you like to be introduced that way? As, uh, you know, there's terrible ways to introduce somebody. Oh, this is my wife, Hannah. She hasn't got a job. Or this is my wife, Hannah. She's got a drinking problem. Oh, but this is my wife, Hannah. She has no children. They can't have children. It's like, that's a terrible way to introduce somebody. But again, in that culture, this is the status. This is a woman, a voiceless. She's pushed down. She can't have children. That's a problem too. In that culture, even more so than today, because I know even today, uh, there's many women even here have trouble falling pregnant or staying pregnant or having children. That's a real issue. But in that day, it's even, it's a part of your status. It's a part of who you are that, that if you can't have children, you are actually an outcast in society. Having children gives you your identity. You're a mum. You justify your position. This is who I am. Even uh, biblically, we look at Proverbs, another Old Testament book, talks about how you know you are blessed if God gives you a house full of kids. That's how you're blessed. In Deuteronomy, before this, God says he's going to bless Israel and he, they'll know how he blesses them because he's going to make them fertile and have lots of kids. But he says, you do the wrong thing and I'm angry with you. You'll know that because I'm going to close your wombs and you won't have any children. So it's a curse. So here we meet Hannah, a woman, voiceless, looked down on society, no children. How this plays out for Hannah is that she's probably Elkanah's first wife. She's introduced that way first. First wife. It's not usual to have two wives who read that and go, oh, I think that must be what they did in that day. It is the exception to the rule, even in that day. But it was quite accepted if you had a wife, there were no children. Well, you know, kind of what's the point for them? Uh, so he took a second wife, so she would have children. So already we're getting this picture of the family dynamics. Where does Hannah fit? It's a bit like a third wheel, really. Just sort of swings around, hangs on. She doesn't have a place even in the family. This is her world. And we're starting to feel some of the pain that she's in. She's a woman, she's got no voice, she's childless. She doesn't have any status in society. And we get more of the story about how this plays out around the dinner table. They go to the festival. Uh, this festival is a place of celebration um, where they go to the temple, this place of Shiloh. Uh, and this is what all Israel come together. They come together to celebrate all the good things God has done, except for now I think they've forgotten about God. They just come together for a big feast and a big time to drink and party. But for Hannah, this is a lot of pain. She's got there and what she got to celebrate. 
We're told about sitting around the table. Can you imagine the table being set? Elkanah, the dad's at the head of the table. Um, Penina, the other wife's on one side and maybe Hannah's on the other side. And all the ring of plates all around the table, table are all Penina's children. Where's Hannah's children? They're not there. She might get a double serve, but it's not the same, is it? Panina's children everywhere. Hannah's children nowhere. And just sitting at the dinner table is a time of pain for, that, for her in that time. So Hannah does uh, feel the pain on that, and she takes it really hard. Now, when we're in pain, what are we hoping that will happen? We're hoping our friends, people around us might get beside us, might go on the journey with us, travel with us, comfort us. Now, Hannah's got a few people around her, and she's probably counting on them to carry her through this journey. Now, let's see what Panina, the other wife, does. Sorry. Uh, Panina's there at the, at the celebration, and she uses this time every year when they go up to celebrate at the temple, they, she uses it to rub it in, you know, put salt into the wound. You know, she'd go up there and uh, just really dig it into Hannah. You'd imagine the conversations. Oh, I love my children, says Panina. Children are so good, aren't they? I feel so blessed. They give me so much joy. What do you reckon, Hannah? Did I tell you, Hannah, we're thinking of having some more children? I'm thinking of having another one. You can imagine how Hannah would be feeling at that time. Year after year after year, Panina, the sisterhood, right? The sisterhood, she should be getting support from another woman. If anybody would understand her situation, it would be another woman. But no, Panina's not going to be there for her. Hannah, again, is alone and weeping. Well, the husband, right? Elkanah. Elkanah's a good bloke. I actually like Elkanah. He tries really hard. And I actually associate with him. He sees Hannah's pain. He knows Hannah's pain. And he does things like most blokes would. I'm sure I've done this one time. Here, sweetheart, have an extra serving of dinner. Yeah, get a good feed into you. That'll make you feel better. It always makes me feel better. But for her, she's like, she actually walks away from the table, leaving food on a table. I'm sure, I'm sure Elkanah's disgusted at that. But Food's not going to resolve the issue, is it? But good old Elkanah, he doesn't give up. He's thinking about it. He's going to talk to her using logic and maybe a bit of charm. And I'm sure I've done this before too. He says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? No need to say it didn't go down too well. Um, but for a bloke, a bit of charm, a bit of compassion, you know, a bit of logic, surely that's going to help her work through this situation. But no, not for Hannah. Not even Elkanah, her husband, can help her through this misery. She's got no children. She's voiceless. Nobody's listening to her. Nobody's understanding her. Nobody can help her. What if she goes to the temple? So after dinner... Uh, she gets up, um, after not finishing a dinner, she gets up, goes to the temple. I'm going to go to the temple. I might even run into the priest there. Maybe he'll understand me. I'm going to pray. And we see her. She's at the temple. She's weeping. Uh, and she starts to pray. And we see um, Eli, the priest, is to the side that she sees. So he sees her. Uh, we'll get back to what Hannah prays for in a moment. 
But as what, what Eli is seeing is a woman that's highly emotional at the end of the night after dinner when everybody's probably had a few too, too many drinks, come to the temple, she's emotional, she's moving her mouth but she can't get the words out. What is Eli going to think? What is the priest going to think? Well, as he sees her doing this, he has no comfort for her. He basically says, get out of here, you drunk. What are you doing sticking to this wine? When are you going to give up your drink? Just go home. And why does he do this? Because, you know, surely a priest, you know, crying woman, he's going to see something's going on that he could help with. But in fact, I wonder, is he sitting at the front of the temple because he's seen this all the time, all too often? Israel is so far from God. They've forgotten about God. They never come to the temple to pray to God. It just doesn't happen. But here at the end of the night, people have had a few too many drinks. And what do you do when you have a few too many drinks? You start to get these harebrained ideas. Oh, let's go up to the temple. Let's pretend we're worshipping God. So they go up to the temple. And kind of the priest is there just to basically protect the temple from being vandalised or abused some way. And here's another woman. Can't even get the words out of her mouth. Go home, you're drunk. That's just a typical state of Israel. But Hannah breaks the mould here, doesn't she? She says, no, 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 I'm actually, I'm pouring out my heart. I've come to God with genuine pain. Now, Eli blesses her and sends her on away, which is a good thing to do. But she's not comforted by Eli, the priest. That doesn't happen at all. But what she does pray, where she does find comfort, because she hasn't found comfort through the sisterhood, not the husband, not even the priest. Where is she going to find comfort? And we see it, how she pours herself out to God in her prayer in verse 11. She says a few interesting things, starting with Lord Almighty. Now, in the context of where Israel is at at the moment, they've been pushing God to the background for generations. Nobody calls Lord Almighty, creator of the universe, in control of all things, I'm going to come before you. No, God's just like one of their other idols, one they can try and use and manipulate. But Hannah says this, Lord Almighty, I'm coming before you. If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me. So again, she's not trying to tell God what to do, but I'm your servant and I'm in pain trying to get through this life. She says, remember me. And this term... Uh, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, uh, remember me. Has, it's more than just don't forget me, don't forget my face or my name. But remember me is like, li- please listen to me. Please know my story. And please remember me as in, please do something about it. Please help me. Please help me on my journey. Remember me uh, in, in answering my prayer. She pleads. She goes on and not forget your servant. But give her a son, is her request. Then she says, I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, uh, why is she talking about razors and things? To say she's going to give him to the Lord means if it, once he's uh, weaned and old enough, once he's two or three years old, she's actually going to give him back to the temple uh, so he can be raised as one of the priests, you might say. And they had a tradition where um, their hair would not be cut or shaved. It was a sign of being in the priesthood. And she's going, right from the moment he's born, I'm going to dedicate him to you. I'm going to give him back to you, uh, is what, what 
what she is promising he'll do. Now, it's interesting, this prayer, because it's easy to see what she is doing and what she's not doing, because it's kind of like a bit of a trap, I think, if you read it too quickly and don't get into the, the context of what's going on. Because if we go, oh, she's praying for a son, and, you know, if you know the end of the story, she will get a son, but she's praying for a son, is this how we should pray? Oh, you know, Lord, mighty God, you know, I'm your servant, give me this. And I'm sure you've done it before, because I've done it before too. If you're praying something big for God, how do you twist his arm? You do him a deal. If you give me this, I will do this for you, God. It sounds like she's doing that. God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. But it's dangerous when we kind of look at the prayer that way, because the Bible talks a lot about making idols and following God, trusting God and not idols. And what she could be saying if we go down that path is going, I need a son. My son is the only thing that's going to fix my problems. I'm no longer a voiceless woman. I'm no longer a barren woman. If I had a son, people would respect me. I'm a somebody. I've, all of a sudden, I've got a voice and, and people will listen to me. They'll care for me if I had a son. And if she was saying that, she'd be saying, the son is going to be my saviour. He's going to save me from my pain. He's going to save me from, my, from being downtrodden. He's going to make me a somebody. If you give me a son, he's going to be my saviour. It's not consistent with what the Bible teaches about idols because it talks about all things. We think of idols sometimes being statues we can put in the corner, but we can make anything idols. We make children our idols when, when they're our saviour, their identity, and we just uh, commit to them and them alone. Maybe it's finding a husband or a wife. God, if I had a husband, if I had a wife, that would save me from my pain. And you look to them to be your saviour. Lord, if I had money, and money becomes our idol, becomes our saviour. If I had money, I'd be a much happier person. I could bless so many other people if I had money. Lord, just give me money. But money becomes the idol. Money becomes the saviour. She's actually not saying, I need a son, and my son's going to be the saviour that's going to turn my life around. That's not what she's doing. Well, what is she doing? When she actually says, Lord, give me a son... It sounds a little bit like it's all about her. But she says, no, no, it's not about the son. In fact, as soon as he's weaned, I'm going to send him to the temple. I'm not even going to be with him as he grows up. So it's not about the son being her saviour and saving her from the pain. Well, what is she praying for? Lord, if you give me a son, remember, she's a woman, Nobody cares about her. Nobody's listening to her. Nobody's sharing her pain. But if you give me some, what I'm saying is, do you care about me? Do you really care about me? You're the almighty God. I'm a barren woman, voiceless. Nobody's listening. But if you care for me, I'll know because you've heard my prayer. You'll give me a son. It's not about the son. I'm going to give him back. But do you care about me? Is her prayer. Are you listening? Will you remember me? Are you listening to me? Are you understanding me? Will you be the answer to my prayer? She's actually saying, will you be my saviour? Not the son. Will you, God, be my saviour? It's a big prayer. 
Because in the context of Israel, she's a nobody. You'd expect somebody like Eli the priest. He's got good connection with God. He's a man with prominence. He could pray mighty things to God. Surely we don't hear Eli praying. We actually hear one of the lowest of low people in society at that time crying out to God in pain. Is God going to listen? Does God care when nobody else does? Now, as the story goes on, uh, we see that he does. We've actually been given little hints that the Almighty God's been in control all the time. It was God who closed her womb. It was God that's in control uh, of those sort of things. So God can open her womb, and God does, and she has a boy. And she's overjoyed, and she gives him back to the temple uh, to be to serve, um, to serve God. God comes through. He will be her saviour. He will be, as in God, will be her saviour. God will be the one who rescues. God is the one who hears. God is the one who cares. God is the one who does something about it and says, yes, you are somebody in my eyes and I will restore you. I will uh, stop the crying and the pain. In the end, she has many children, which we'll find out next time. But I think this story about Hannah is very close to home for a lot of us. And literally, if we're talking about domestic violence, some people have seen it firsthand. Difficulties having children, many people have seen it firsthand. But even in times of feeling downtrodden, rejected, alone, and thinking that nobody cares, I think for whatever reason, I think we can all associate with her. The trap is for us looking for a saviour. Who's going to listen to me? Who's going to save me? Who cares for me? And we look for other things that we may turn into saviours. Is it going to be my husband? Is it going to be this person? Is it going to be my money and my comfort? Is it going to be whatever? Without looking to God. But God is the saviour. God is the hero in this story. God is the main character. God comes to He's not in the background. The people want to push him into the background, just push him aside. We can get on life without God. And we saw how bad of a mess that was in the book of Judges. But when a woman and nobody cries out to God, he says, I'm listening. I'm there for you. I'm not in the background at all. I'm, I'm here in your life, waiting, wanting to help you. See, this is the God, same God we follow. It's the same God that we see in the New Testament. The same God that's going to send a saviour in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that when Jesus came, he didn't come as a somebody, as a hero right from day one, but he comes as a baby, a weak baby. And he comes and as he grows, he feels all the pain of everybody else. He goes out to the weak. He goes out to the downtrodden and the outcasts in society. He gets abused by, he gets abandoned by his friends. One of his 12 disciples sell him into to being hung on the cross. When he's being hung on the cross, where are his disciples? They're all fleeing, denying they knew anything about him. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. But he come to this earth to reach out. For the alone, for the abandoned, for the hurting. God knows us. He knows what we're going through. And he invites us to come to him always. Come before him in prayer. He promises he will listen. He promises he will hear our prayers. In 1 Peter, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7. His instructions to the church. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 
Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's the invitation. Don't think that God doesn't care. Don't push him to the side. Don't try and depend on other things to be your saviour, to resolve your pain. But come to God. He's inviting you. He wants you to come to him. He promises to hear you. He will not forget you. He will remember you. That's his promise. As a church, we want to be a church that does this. We want to be a church that is aware of the pain and the suffering that we all go through. We want to be the ones that get beside and encourage. But we also know we can't be the saviour and fix everybody's problems also. But we can pray with people, point them back to Jesus, back to the one that is the hero, that is the saviour, and that can help. Let me pray for each of us. Let me pray for us as a church. We'll be a church that always depends on God and not in our own strength. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that when we read what goes on in the Bible, we understand that we're dealing with real people, with real issues, people just like us. Lord, we thank you for this story uh, that's been recorded for us of Hannah, that when we dig deeper, we feel her pain. We feel many things that go on in our lives that we can associate with her. And Lord, you know our pain. Even before we say it, Lord, you know our hearts. Even though we might push you away or push you into the background, we know you are still there. So let us come before you this morning with our brokenness, our disappointments, in our aloneness. But Lord, we ask you for healing. We ask you as our saviour to restore us, to know your love, to be lifted up, to be remembered. Lord, help us to be a church that always points on you. Lord, we know we can only do so much in comforting people, but you are our saviour. And help us to trust in you and you alone. Amen.